So welcome. As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please um, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, every time we open the Bible, we open it with a promise. And the promise is that these words are not idle words to us, but rather, as Moses said, they're our life. As the psalmist says, they restore our soul. As he also said, um, it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As Jesus says, this truth brings freedom from the bondage to sin. As the apostle said, this word is profitable for us to rebuke and to teach and to train that we may live godly and righteous lives. As the author of Hebrews says, this word is a two-edged sword. It comes and and digs deep and reveals to us who we are, but also reveals to us, uh, the gospel reveals to us who God is and is working in our lives. The apostle Peter says that this word is an imperishable seed in us that that brings life to us, that can, be never, that can never be snuffed out. So we're grateful, Father. So please, I pray that we see this promise fulfilled even as we read the scripture together and think upon it. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Judges, the Old Testament Judges in chapter 4, please. Judges chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Chapter 5 also continues the story in poetry, but I'm not going to get to that today. So chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after he had died. And the Lord sold them into the land of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heroseth uh, Agoim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of uh, Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinuim from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and from the people of Zebulun, and I will draw at Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give you into his hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinuam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out from called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Heraseth 
Agoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his armies before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Haraseth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Hebor, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink uh, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into the temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I'll show you uh, the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a, with a tent peg in his temple. And on that day, God said, Subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, what are we going to do with this? Now, I said, as I was praying, you may have listened uh, though I wasn't talking to you, but you may have listened. Um, uh, I pray that, you know, we open the Bible, we open it with a promise and that it's life to us. And so we trust that passages like this will be life uh, to us. The Old Testament stories, as we call them as kids, these, these incidents, these events, these situations that took place, um, uh, are necessary for us. You know, the Apostle Paul says these Stories warn us and also give us hope. And so we need to tell them to ourselves. The people in the days which this was written need to tell, needed to tell this story and others to themselves for warning, but also then to give them, to give them hope. Um, so what do we see here? Well, let me begin with just some observations about the passage. Right? Some observations about the passage. First of all, uh, you wouldn't know from my reading, but chapter 4 and chapter 5 are accounts of the same events just told differently. Chapter 4 is the narrative account, it's the prose account. Chapter 5 is a poetic account of the same situation. That happens from time to time in scripture, where an event will take place, and then there'll be a song about it. The people will sing about it. Uh, The one you're probably most familiar with comes right after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And then in Exodus chapter 15 is this great song of Moses and Miriam, where they sing about the horse and rider thrown into the sea. And and as just, just by way of thinking about that is the realization 
that that's a picture of our lives, not horses and riders thrown into the sea or necessarily people getting killed by tent pegs, but, but this narrative and poetry, this narrative that describes people and events and logistics, and then the poetry that sings to God. So that's what happens here in chapter 4. We read a great deal. We know God is here. He's mentioned a few times, but, 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 but we see primarily the events that took place and the people through whom they took place. But then in chapter 5, in this song, God is praised. It, it's, it's God's doing all of this. And, and I was thinking, that's kind of like our lives, Monday through Saturday. We're kind of caught up in the narrative. We're kind of caught up in the logistics and the people and the things that happen in our lives. And we know because we pray during the week and we read our Bible during the week. We talk to other believers during the week and all that sort of thing. Uh, we know that God is in it, but still we get so caught up. I get so caught up in, in the dailiness of it. But then on Sundays, we sing. And we come together on Sundays and we sing. We don't sing about us. Uh, we don't sing about the logistics. We sing about God. And that's the pattern for life, isn't it? The narrative and the song. The dailiness and the recognition that this has got to work. And so we sing and we're supposed to do that joyfully. I stand up here. You don't always look joyful, by the way. You can work on that. Uh, while you're singing, just just a little, you know, just saying. Now, but but here we have this situation, and 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 the guts of the story are easy to lay out. In fact, uh, like our great philosopher, baseball friend Yogi said, uh, it's deja vu all over again. It, it's just another event that looks similar, at least in pattern, to the ones that we've been seeing. Uh, the, the the judge dies who's been watching over the people. And after that, then the people once again do evil in the sight of the Lord, which means they forget God. And rather than worship him, they worship the idols that are around them in the land. And in fact, if you read the poetic passage, you read a little expression, and that is that there are new gods in Israel. And so we get it. They're, they're worshiping idols. So God, being faithful to his people, can't, reinforce that behavior, if you will. And so he disciplines them. And the way he does that in this national way is by way of this oppression that comes against them and this enslavement by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites come in through Jabin, who's the king, uh, and Sisera, who's his commander-in-chief. And that lasts for 20 years, that oppression. And that oppression is significant. Don't just pass that by. Uh, because on the one hand... Sisera, who was the commander-in-chief, had 900 chariots. And so he was way more powerful than you could ever imagine. That's like having an atomic bomb in your pocket, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of weaponry an iron chariot was in these days, unstoppable. And to have 900 of them would just be overwhelming to any people. So they were oppressed just under that power and the threat of that power being used against them. But there was more. If we look at the poetic accounts of this, there's a description of Sisera. And the description begins in verse 28 of chapter 5. Out of the windows she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. So it's his mom. 
commander-in-chief, Sisera, it's his mom. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? So she's thinking, this battle's taking way too long. Something bad must have really happened to my son. So she's waiting. So then, verse 29, her wisest princesses answered. Indeed, she answers herself. So she knows this about her son. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the next as his spoil. In other words, isn't he about gathering the spoil, which would be taking all the stuff, but not only all the stuff, but he would be raping the women. Two wombs, two women, two wombs. A womb for every, or two for every man. That was the nature of the oppression. We mustn't pass that by. We mustn't think, oh, oppression for 20 years. It's that kind of oppression. That spirit, if you will, that's oppressing. And so that was it, you see, that kind of oppression, the threat of power, also just this decadence and abuse taking place. That was the norm. So get that. So the people cry out. In the midst of all that, God has a judge in Israel raised up at this time. In fact, the poetic passage refers to Deborah as the mother, if you will, who nurtures Israel back to life, if you will. So she comes along to nurture uh, Barak. She calls up by the by the word of God, to lead the forces against Sisera and Jabin. And so he does. He leads the forces against them. 10,000 men against an atomic bomb, against the 900 chariots. And yet he routes Sisera. Sisera escapes. And as he does, he goes to a place where he thinks of safety because there's peace between Jabin the king and this man's family. And yet he meets uh, Jael, who then sees uh, uh, Cicero and, and pegs him for an enemy. And you know the rest of the story. So, so, so we get that. But, but, but just thinking about this, this struggle with me through this passage just a little bit. I mean, first we have Jabin. Jabin is the king of Canaan. And, and Jabin probably is, a, just a little Bible trivia for you, is probably a title as opposed to a name. It's probably a title like Pharaoh, that all the kings of Canaan would be Jabins, if you will. We ran across, well, if you read through the scripture, uh, you ran across another Jabin, another king of Canaan, uh, in Joshua chapter 11, uh, which is the irony here, so that is. As, as, um, as Joshua enters into the land and conquers, he conquers this Jabin uh, soundly. But now, because of the sin of the people, another Jabin has written, risen up. Maybe the same one, but another one has written, risen up. And, and now is their nemesis. He's now powerful again. And you think, oh, if only you'd followed the Lord, this wouldn't have, this wouldn't have happened. And then Sisera, this decadent, despicable, Presser. But we can't miss the fact that Deborah is the judge. A woman is a judge. I mean, it, it just sort of happens. And she's different, not only because she's a woman, but different because she's not a warrior judge. All the other judges are the rescuers, the warriors that come. But, but Deborah is a judge. And there's, there's all kinds of theories about this. It's just fascinating to me. You know, one of the problems or difficulties of, of, of thinking through a narrative passage of Scripture 
is that what a narrative does is give us the facts. It doesn't always tell us the hows and the whys, particularly the whys. All we know is that Deborah is there as the judge. It strikes us as unusual, but we don't know from this passage why. Some have speculated that life in Israel was such that there was no man who would step up and judge. And so when Barak says to her, I'll go and fight as long as you come with me. Some then interpret that to say that, that and, and then, oh, I'm sorry, then Deborah says, well, I'll go, but a woman's going to get glory for this victory. Uh, that That's a judgment against Barak, that she's saying, hey, because you didn't man up, then uh, a woman's going to get the glory. But that's not what the passage says at all. The, the, the passage says, she says, sure, I'll go. I mean, it's not like she's reluctant in any way. And it, doesn't it make some sense that if she's a judge, so she's been called by God to rule the people in a wise kind of way and to help them, and if she's a prophetess, Barak would know that because she prophesied, go get him. And so, and, and, and that, that he would just be smart to say, Hey, come with me. You're the judge. You're the prophetess. I need you in this. So why don't you come too? I mean, he wouldn't be the first guy urged along by a woman to do the right thing. Uh, and so, uh, and when we read through, there's only two other passages in the Bible that hint even or mention this particular situation. One's in First Samuel, uh, and the other is in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, when you think of Hebrews chapter 11, you're thinking, oh, that's the chapter that lays out all these great people of faith. I bet Deborah's mentioned there as a great person of faith. No, she isn't. It actually Barak is. And so whatever was true about this situation, it wasn't true that he didn't have faith. How many more negatives can I put in a sentence? What was really true was that he had faith. That's what Hebrews 11 says. He's commended for his faith. So whatever's going on here isn't a lack of faith on his part. And you go, well, then why was a woman uh, the judge at this point in time and not a man? I don't know. Text doesn't tell me. She just is. So let's just enjoy the fact that there she is. And then Jael. Whew. I mean, again, you think, God, if you're going to deliver your people... Do it like you did with the first judge, Othniel. I mean, we endured Ehud and all that mess last week. And now we have Jael. I mean, she tricks this guy. I mean, he thinks that he's safe in her tent because uh, her, his, her husband's family has this sort of treaty, if you will, with Jabin. They're friends in some way. So she thinks he thinks it's going to be fine. He wants water to refresh him. She gives him milk, which is more helpful if you want to sleep. And so he goes to sleep and then she takes out a tent peg and puts it in his temple and, well, you know the rest of the story. Now, the tent peg isn't as ruthless as it, well, it probably is as ruthless as it sounds. Uh, But it's not surprising because in this day, in a nomadic sort of culture, it was the women who put up the tents. And so a tent peg would be in her carry-on. And so 
it would be something she would be familiar with. My, my trust is she probably hadn't used it like that before. But mm, she could handle a tent peg. And there she was. And you go, God, why is it? Why, why do you use these kinds of ways to deliver your people? And again, it doesn't say other than it's wartime. And he's in the context of a group of very flawed people. You know, the refrain is everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And God could change all of that and ultimately will. But he's in that situation. And then we say, huh, he does use flawed people all the time, doesn't he? Uh, That dawned on me just this morning. So we trust God is at work. But that's what we have in this in this narrative. So then the question is, why should they tell themselves this story? And why should we tell ourselves this story? How is it of help to them? How is it of help to us? This, I think, first. Uh, provide them assurance. and provides us assurance. The big question always is, and especially as we read through the Old Covenant, is uh, um, there's this tension between God's grace... I will be your God and you will be my people. Doesn't depend on you. God says, I'm making you my people. So there's this tension between his grace and also then his commandments. Because he says, I'll be my God. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Therefore, I have no other gods before me. What happens if we do? What happens if we do? Well, first we know in the Old Covenant there were sacrifices to make so sins could be forgiven. But, but what happens if those sacrifices are offered from an insincere heart? Just perfunctory, just going through the motions. What, what's God going to do with that people? And then what happens when what happens is that people leave God altogether and worship idols. What's God going to do? Well, he's going to discipline his people to bring them back so he can deliver them and once again be in relationship with him. He's going to do that. Well, that's good news. Let's say that these folks are in exile in Babylon. And you might remember that situation in the history of ancient Israel that that the Babylonians came in and and, um, destroyed Jerusalem and took uh, these uh, Israelites and exiled them into Babylon, and there they were for 70 years, and they're sitting in Babylon under the rule of the Babylonians, wondering what's going to happen to us. Well, this story would be a great relief to them to tell. They might even say, as I would say, hey, we weren't as bad as those people, and God delivered them. I guess the word that we're getting from the prophets to say God will deliver us is really true. And they might scratch their head and go, but but how's he going to do that? And they go, well, he used J.L., He can probably figure out a way to deliver us as well. And so you see, this story would reinforce this confidence, this assurance that God will be faithful to his covenant, his promises. You do know that tension is resolved in Jesus because he obeys for us and he took the penalty of our sin for us. So he took the curse of the covenant and also fulfilled the covenant all at the same time so that we could be in him. So now we don't have to worry about ten pegs. We can just repent. And trust in him. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. And this is really the point of it, I think. When Deborah said to Barak, um, 
Get 10,000 men. Go up and face Sisera of 9,000 iron chariots fame. And God will send you down to fight him near the river. Uh, go do that. And if I'm Barak, I'm thinking, are you crazy? I mean, I got 10,000 guys. They've got 900 chariots. That doesn't seem fair at all. doesn't seem like I have a chance at all. And I have to be honest with you, most days I wake up exactly like that. Most days I wake up and I look at what's on my to-do list and I look at life in general and I think, really? I've got to really do this today? I've got to really face whatever it is I have to face today? And how am I really going to get the confidence to, 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 to do that? To really live out this life that God calls me to. You do realize that in the culture in which we live, people think we're crazy. In fact, more than that, it's becoming the fact that they think we're immoral. And what we believe about life and how it's to be lived. And I get up in the morning and I look at that and I say, really God? I've got I've to remain faithful in the midst of this? You know me. I mean, really? You want me to live this out in the midst of in the midst of this? Or just think about it. I mean, if you're married, in the context of your marriage, there are days I'm sure you wake up thinking, really, God? How am I going to keep going in this? This is a difficult relationship at the moment. How do I how do I really live this out if you're a parent? Don't you wake up in the morning going, ah, what do I do with this? Really? I've got to mold this child, these children? Uh, how, do I, how do I really do that? Or you're trying to make a living just to make ends meet or, or, or maybe a little better than that. Uh, and you, you begin to think, you know, really, God, how, how am I going to do this? I, I don't know what's going to happen day to day in the economy in which we live. It seems good at the moment, but all of these messages we're getting and how things are going to recess in the economy. And so you know, what, what do I do? How do I navigate these, these waters? Who do I trust in the midst of this? How, do, how does all this take place? How, how can I, I really make it and, and, and really live this out? And then you're calling me to a moral life, a holy life. How am I to live? We look in the context of our church life. How, how are we to, to, to meet all the ministry demands that we have? And how are we going to, 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 to maintain our witness in the community and life? And all of that taken together. And then we look at our bodies and we think, well, one of these days, illness, disease, it'll get me. And I'm going to die. Are you going to, what then? So all of that. So I wake up very much feeling like Barak, 10,000. I got 10,000 soldiers, but I'm facing 900 chariots. How am I ever going to do this? Well, how did he do it? Well, here was the word of the Lord through Deborah that I think enabled him. Verse 14 of chapter 4. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? See, Barak had this challenge. It's the same challenge we have is, am I going to believe God's word? And I'm, am I going to believe this word is really true? 
And the word that he received was go up. But the, the confidence, the, the, the faith-building word he got was, doesn't the Lord go before you? In other words, isn't he already there? Yeah, I know he's calling you to face this army that's bigger and more powerful than you are. But isn't he already there? And if he's already there, then what are you afraid of? If God is already there, just go meet him there. He's there waiting for you. And there, there's indicators throughout this story that, that all of this is that all of this is certainly certainly true. Uh, for instance, um, he was to meet um, Sisera by this river, and scholars think that it must have been the dry season, because no good military person like Sisera with chariots, would ever meet anybody by a river when there could be mud. If you want to beat a chariot, get it stuck in mud. And then it's a parked chariot. Right? And so, so, so scholars think, but, but something happened. For instance, in chapter 5, in the poetic version, verse 4, goes like this. Lord, when you went out from Seir... When you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, clouds of water dropped. Well, that's a surprise to Sisera. Then verse 19, chapter 5. The kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at uh, Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon, the river, the torrent, meaning it was really rushing, the torrent Kishon swept them away. And the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. So God was already at work in the weather and the, and the, and the, 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 the location uh, to bring the victory. And there's something else that would be faith building here too. Baal, who was the god of the Canaanites, was the god of the storms. And God said, no, I got that. Let's beat him at his own game. And the chariots were immobilized. Even Sisera, after he saw that they were losing the battle, left his chariot. Why? That was a silly thing. Why didn't he just turn around with his chariot and say, go really fast that way? Because it wasn't really working. And not only that, God had gone before him because... There's this funny little verse in verse 11. I don't know when I was reading it, if you caught it, probably not. But, but in verse 11, out of the blue, after this big discussion about uh, Barak getting the, the uh, uh, army together and, and Deborah going with him, verse 11 just kind of puts in there, parenthetically, now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. And you're thinking, so what? I mean, so what? But that was preparation for Sisera to run to where Heber and Jael were, so that he'd be off on his own thinking he's safe and he wouldn't be. So that was there. And then also, sometime before, there had been this friendship developed between Jabin and the household of, of, uh, of, of Heber so that he would feel safe. So all this was taking place. So this idea, 
God is already there. So don't be afraid. Just go. And that's the promise of Scripture all over the place. Moses said to the people of Israel as they were entering the land, go because God's already there. He'll go before you. He'll go before you. It known this because there's a wonderful passage. I don't have time to turn to it, but in Psalm 105, there's a description of, of Joseph. You remember Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, went through all kinds of difficulties to end up in Egypt so that he could be number two in Egypt. He could be the Pharaoh's right-hand person, right-hand man. And, and, and so he could control the food that was being distri- distributed during a time of famine. And all of that was God saying, I'm sending Joseph ahead of you so that when this happens, you'll have the food that you need. Abraham would know it because when he took his son Isaac, who he had been commanded to sacrifice, that when he got to the place of sacrifice, God would already be there and there'd be a substitute for his son. It's always true that God goes, you see, before us, And that gives us the confidence to get up and to go there. Think about it. Spend this week thinking about, in your life, all the places where God was before you got there. And when you got there, you went, oh, the way has been prepared for me. If you'll allow me, I don't usually share about my own life, but here's just some things. For instance, when I was 15 years old, my family moved from western Pennsylvania, small town, to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Oddly enough, I didn't want to go at 15. But I look back and I realize the first week I was there, I met somebody named Karen. Oh. And then, and then, then we went off to college and all that and went to graduate school. And when we... When I went to Tallahassee, Florida, where Florida State went to Florida State University, in Tallahassee, we just happened upon a church, and there was this small group of young married couples that had been together for a while that invited us to come that changed my whole life. And it was there, ready, waiting for us. And then when I was in Tallahassee and finishing up at Florida State and looking for a job, I, 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 had, a, I had an interview at this college in um, uh, Florence, South Carolina. And uh, I didn't really want to go in the interview. And so I was praying and I said, God, I I don't really want to go there. Uh, I bet there aren't any Christians there at all. It was one of my more rational moments. Uh, I mean, everybody in South Carolina thinks they're a Christian. But anyway... uh, I said, this is, I just don't want to go there. And so I was home by myself and I was flipping stations on the TV. Uh, only a few people know this story, so don't tell anybody, okay? Um, and in those days, you had to make a commitment to channel surf because you actually had to go to the TV and actually turn the dial. The good news, you didn't have to stand there long because you only had to turn it about a dozen times. But... Uh, and uh, only three of those really mattered. But I, I turned and, and all of a sudden this... this Picture comes on with this man, literally, and he says, he gives his name, I, don't, I didn't remember hearing it at the time, and he said, I'm, I'm a pastor in Florence, South Carolina. And we have a great church, and we have a fabulous Christian community here. And then it went off. 
And I'm going, am I dead? <laughs> I mean, what's, you know, what I have for lunch? Uh, and so I went and I took the job. And about three months in to having been there, I meet this pastor. We're just talking. And he said, where'd you move from? And I said, oh, Tallahassee, Florida. And he said, oh, I hate Tallahassee. And I said, why? He said, I lost a ton of money there. I said, why? He said, well, I have this TV program. And we tried to, to, to broadcast to that part of Florida. And we only got in one afternoon for like a minute. And I went, how much do I owe you? Right? I'm, you know, when I pick up the remote, Karen looks at me and says, be careful. Uh, but, but God going before us. And then, then there in South Carolina, I realized that's the place where we were nurtured so that, and we met people who then literally sent us to seminary. And, and in my worries about how are we going to pay for this months before I, I, um, I, we, we went, uh, I'd been accepted at a seminary and I was praying and, and, and I said, God, I don't have any money and I have two kids and a wife and I don't know how we're going to do this, and, but I need $3,000 to um, pay the first semester's tuition and live for a month. And uh, a guy came up to me and said, by the way, I've set aside $3,000 for you to go to seminary. And I went, okay, you're there. That's good. And then the course of those years, as many of you know, people just sent us money. We never asked for it. Sent us money to go to seminary. So I didn't have to work. And Karen didn't have to work. And we didn't go crazy. And I got finished early. And, and so we moved through seminary. And it just so happened then that when I began to pray about a job, I'm a little nervous about things. And, and so I'm praying about a job. And, and I got a call from a friend of mine saying, hey, I just met a guy who's a church in Colorado who needs a pastor. I told him he should hire you. And I said, okay, God, you're there. Then while we were in Colorado in our third year, Karen and I began to think about leaving that position and, and doing and going somewhere else. And, and it just so happened at our General Assembly meeting that June uh, 1988, some guy stood up in the middle of the meeting and said, hey, I'm from Lawrence, Kansas. We just started planting a church just this month. We're looking for a pastor. So a year later, uh, as I had then finally decided that we would move, I said to Karen, on our drive from Denver to St. Louis, as we're going to our General Assembly meeting that summer in 89, we drove by Lawrence and I said, I wonder who took that church in Lawrence to plant that church. And, and she said, I don't know. And so when we got to our General Assembly meeting, I sat down and the same guy was sitting in front of me. And he turned around, we started talking and I said, hey, got a job? So here we are. And when we look at the course of just the last 30 years here, we can see how at every turn, when there was a need, there was a preparation and a supply. And I look back at how much I've worried and realize I didn't need to (laughs) because God was there already. In fact, on my calendar in my phone, every day when it pops up and it's a particular day, the first thing on my list is God is here. And I think, right? And then just to make sure, I check two weeks out and he's still there. Uh, 
because it repeats daily like forever. So kids, if you're worried about your third period class, on Tuesday, God's already there. Go. If you're worried about that doctor's appointment on Thursday, God's already there. Go. If you're worried about now, that doesn't mean that when we get there, we'll see that everything's peaches and cream and, and oh, it's all perfect and so forth and so on. It doesn't mean we don't have to do any, any prep work. I mean, uh, Barack had to get the army together. He had to go and he had to mobilize and he had to get there and all of that and do all of that. He had to go all the way down to the river. Uh, and I'm sure on his way, he's going, I hope this is really true. Uh, and there he found out it was. But that's, you see, why we keep telling ourselves this story. Because we want to get to the part where she says, where Deborah says, God's already there. And that's the story of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus has already gone before us. And the night that he was betrayed, what did he say to his disciples? He said, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to, I'm going to beat you there. I'm going to go first. I've got to go first. I'm the trailblazer. Hebrews chapter 2 says that he's faced every temptation for us. So he can help us. Whatever temptation you're in, you can know that Jesus has already been there. Hebrews chapter 4 says that when we pray, we have one who empathizes with us. Why? Because he's already lived life. And he gets it. He understands. He's already been there. And then this, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. The author of Hebrews says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, what what he was saying to them is what the author of Hebrews lays out here. He was going into that very special place, the Holy of Holies, but a heavenly one. Well, the earthly one, they would know about. The earthly holy of holies was the place where the high priest could only go in once a year. And when he did, he had better have blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat so that the people could live in the presence of God for another year. Now Jesus, the high priest, is saying, I'm going right into this place of judgment and I'm going to give my own blood. And this is the very place where God dwells. And do you know what happens next? You get to come in. Why? Because I've already been there. I've already made the place. I've already prepared the way. He's already there. The good news is we go where he has already been. I used to have an uncle who used to like look at me and try to scare me. And he would say, you know, I'm going to knock you into the middle of next week. Now I know, that's okay, Jesus is already in the middle of the next week. <laughs> so if I end up in the middle of the next week, well, he's already made a way for me. He's already prepared next week for me. You see, other people have to look at life and say, it must be fate or coincidence or whatever. We get to say, no, 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 no. The Lord really is my shepherd. He really goes before us. And he makes sure that wherever we go, there's nurture, there's sustenance, there's protection, there's rest. We know that because on the night that he was betrayed, 
He took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget, I'm preparing the place. The same way he took the cup after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring he went before us so that we could go there too. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of facing God, the Holy One, because Jesus has gone before us. We don't have to be afraid of next Tuesday because he's already gone before us. Or the Wednesday after that. Or 10 years from Tuesdays after that. Or when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. He's been there. Let's pray. Father, please, I pray, let this word just captivate our whole being. That we would have faith to continue to walk in you, to follow your word, because we know that you are before us and with us and behind us. Now I pray that you take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that with great assurance that you have gone into the Holy of Holies, that we can walk in, go into the very presence of God because of you, because you've been there, because you're there. The place has been prepared. We have great assurance to know that you're always with us. Please help us to know that. And even as we come here, to know that you're with us even now. Assure us of that fact, I pray. Take this bread, this juice, and set it apart in such a way that our faith would be strengthened, that grace would be received, that we may walk with you. This, I pray, in Jesus' name.